What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. This is C-SPAN's The Weekly for Friday, August 9th, 2019. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. It is a summer of presidential politics as the two dozen Democratic candidates continue to shape their message and try to break out from the pack. But how did we end up with the primary and caucus process we have today? A system that allocates the delegates and ultimately selects a nominee. That is our topic this week, and our guest is Elaine Kmark. She literally wrote the book on the modern primary process. Our conversation in just a moment. But first, here's how comedian John Oliver describes the road to the White House from his HBO program back in 2016. Why do the parties operate this way? Because for many years, they didn't. Until 50 years ago, most states didn't even have primaries, and candidates were chosen by party insiders at the convention. But in 1968, that system broke down when the Democratic Party leadership picked Hubert Humphrey, despite the fact he hadn't even competed in a primary. Democrats were pissed off, and the convention was chaos. There's a lot of pushing. The man being pushed, watch it, they're going to knock that over. The man is a delegate. They're asking for silence. There's a priest in here, dozens of reporters, and the man who got involved in it all is very calmly smoking a cigarette. Oh, oh. He's not just smoking any cigarette, he's smoking a Chesterfield. Chesterfield, once you've turned democracy into a riot, you deserve a Chesterfield. Now, in the years that followed that mess, both parties reformed their processes to give their rank-and-file members more of a say. But many of the details were left up to state leaders, which might help explain why we have such an erratic clusterfuck every four years. Almost every part of this process is difficult to defend. That from John Oliver on HBO, and you heard briefly from John Chancellor of NBC News. And joining us here in our studios is Elaine Kmark. She's a senior fellow at Brookings and the author of Primary Politics, Everything You Need to Know About How America Nominates Its Presidential Candidates. Some humor by John Oliver, but is he accurate? Well, he's pretty funny and he's pretty accurate, okay? The 1968 convention was, I will not use the words that he used, but the 1968 convention was a mess, both inside the hall and outside the hall. And it yielded a set of reforms in the Democratic Party that ended up kind of inadvertently reforming the Republican Party as well. And in a piece in the Washington Post, you you talked about the schism within the Democratic Party, uh, the old party and the changes to the new Democratic Party. Explain. Well, in 1968, that schism was both generational. It was older people versus younger people. And it was over the Vietnam War. And it was really about protesting the American involvement in Vietnam, which by 1968 was very costly and very controversial. And the people who wanted to withdraw from the war also felt that they had been cut out of participation 
in the convention. They were, they, it was hard for them to figure out how to get elected as delegates. There weren't very many primaries. So somebody like Gene McCarthy, the senator who was running as an anti-war candidate, had a hard time amassing delegates. So the anti-war press protesters were also the people protesting a system which they felt locked them out. As you look at the Democratic Party over the years, 1960 with John Kennedy, 1976 with Jimmy Carter, 1992 with Bill Clinton, 2008 with Barack Obama, they were all the outsiders. They were the insurgent candidates. And you look at the so-called establishment candidates, such as Hubert Humphrey in 1968, Al Gore in 2000, and Hillary Clinton in 2016, they were the so-called establishment candidates. They all lost. Yes, they did. They did all lose. Um, uh, Some of them, however, you have to go back. Two out of those three actually won but lost in the Electoral College. So their their losses weren't that bad. But yes, uh, um, this is a system that allows for unknown people to emerge. And it is a system that we have put in the hands of primary voters, and we have taken out of the system almost entirely uh, people who actually know the presidential candidates and who could evaluate whether or not they have the skills and the temperament to be an effective president. I came across a documentary from 1960, and it chronicles Hubert Humphrey, then senator from Minnesota, and John Kennedy, the senator from Massachusetts, as they campaigned in the crucial Wisconsin primary. Let's listen. It's a great dream, the dream of becoming president of the United States, shared by millions of American boys, and still held by a few who have grown up and are already close enough to the White House that it no longer seems a dream at all. The process of eliminating these dreamers to select a president usually begins in the presidential primary, a battle fought across the landscape, searching out voters in every town and precinct throughout an entire state. This is the story of the primary process, as it is fought in any important state in any election year, but seen close up as there's never before been captured by the camera. The names could be Taft, Wilkie, Kefauver, This happens to be 1960, Wisconsin. Senator Hubert Humphrey of Minnesota against Massachusetts Senator John F. Kennedy, both driven to exhaustion by the dream that one of them at least is bound to wake up and find was only a great illusion. And of course, one of the big differences between 1960 and 2020 is the number of primaries and caucuses in 1960, Wisconsin and West Virginia really turned the tide for Senator Kennedy. That's right. But you have to understand that in 1960, primaries were kind of like preseason playoffs, okay? they The purpose of primaries was not to allocate delegates. And in fact, in very few primaries were the results binding on the delegates. The purpose of primaries was to let the party leaders know who was electable and who wasn't and who could who could campaign well among the voters. So 1960 is a very instructive example. Jack Kennedy faced one big hurdle, the fact that he was a Roman Catholic. So he had to use the primaries to prove to the party leaders that a Roman Catholic candidate could win uh, Protestant voters. And so they went They went toe-to-toe, Humphrey and Kennedy, in Wisconsin. But that did not do the trick. 
Jack Kennedy won Wisconsin, but the savvy politicians around the country who were watching this to see what the Catholicism might mean looked at it and said, oh, yeah, he won Wisconsin by winning a very, very large number of Catholic precincts and counties. So, in fact, Wisconsin didn't do the job for Jack Kennedy. They had to go on to West Virginia. West Virginia at the time had very few Roman Catholics. It was mostly a white Protestant state. And there, Kennedy beat Humphrey. That showed that, in fact, Kennedy could run, could get votes, and that maybe it wasn't a risky thing to do to nominate him. But the important difference between 1960 and today is that those primaries were effectively tryouts. Okay, they were not binding. They were tryouts, and the audience for those tryouts were the powerful politicians around the country who control delegates to the convention. And, of course, the media very different back in 1960. Very, very different. And, of course, one of the obvious things at the beginning of that quote that you just played that had me chuckling is, of course, the boys who were dreaming about being president. He didn't even consider that girls might dream one day about being president. So I thought that was that's also a big change, but kind of off our topic here. Well, let's go to 1968 once again. And this is what Dan Balls, he had just graduated from college. He worked for his hometown newspaper in Freeport, Illinois, and he talked about what it was like to cover the convention in Chicago. I think everybody knew that that week was a historic moment. I mean, you could see it, you could feel it. You knew the context for the for the convention that year being, you know, unlike anything that we had gone to or seen. There are moments in which, you know, a country is kind of galvanized by an event. And certainly 68 at the Democratic convention was one of those. The divisions we have today are different. Um, they're, they're deep. Uh, they seem intractable, uh, but that but they are different from what we experienced in 1968. That from Dan Balls, who at the time worked for the Freeport, Illinois Journal Standard, and his conversation available on the Washington Post website, which explains a little bit of the music in the background. Fast forward to post-1968 election night and the McGovern-Fraser Commission. Why did that come about, and why was that significant for the Democrats? Well, the first thing to know about that was that it was it turned out to be a lot more significant than people thought it would be at the time. In fact, the definitive book on that is called Quiet Revolution by uh, Byron Schaefer, who was several years ahead of me at graduate school at University of California, Berkeley. And the reason he called it Quiet Revolution is that no one really understood at the time what was going to happen. What it did, first of all, it was a sop to the protesters. It was a way to try and build some party unity after this terrible, terrible convention. Uh, Secondly, what the reformers did as they were reforming these rules was insert a, a lot of rules in there that state parties didn't quite know how to comply with. Their their other experience was so different. And so what happened, again, somewhat inadvertently, is that between 1968, 72, and especially 76, the number of state-run primaries doubled in the United States. 
And so suddenly we went from a process that was not very visible because it was a party-controlled process to a series of highly public events, and where the candidates who won also were guaranteed delegates. We have to remember that even though there were primaries in '68 and the years before, uh, they almost never dictated the preferences of the delegates. They were basically what we call beauty contests. And that was a dramatic, dramatic change because it had consequences for power, for political power. Let me remind our listeners that we are talking with Elaine Kmark, and you chronicle all of this in your book, Primary Politics. We've been focusing on the Democrats, but what about the Republican Party? What was it doing during this time? Well, it's interesting. The Republican Party during this time did have some reform commissions, but after all, they nominated Richard Nixon twice. They did not have nearly the same internal divisions. In fact, their party was united against the chaos that they saw in the streets, in the cities, in the anti-war protesters, etc., Um, But what did happen, interestingly enough, is that as state after state adopted primaries in reaction to the Democratic rules, uh, they tended to be adopted for both parties. Now, still to this day, you will once in a while find a state that has where the Republicans use their primary and the Democrats don't or vice versa. But by and large, what happened is as these primary statutes came about as a result of Democratic pressure, they were adopted by the Republicans as well. And so the Republican Party, too, moved from a process that was dominated by party insiders to a process where the results of the primaries were what was most important. All of the Democratic candidates in Iowa this month, including the Iowa State Fair, where they eat pork chops and look at the butter cow and go to the Des Moines Register soapbox for speeches. I know you get this asked every four years, but but why Iowa? Why New Hampshire? What's the, the tradition and the history behind these two states? Well, let's start with New Hampshire. New Hampshire was always the first in the nation primary. But In 1949, a clever secretary of state in New Hampshire had this idea of putting presidential candidates on the ballot. Prior to that, they put delegates on the ballot. So, you know, your neighbor Joe Schmidt might run for delegate to the convention, but nobody really knew that. And they didn't necessarily know who he was or who he was for. By putting presidential preference on the ballot, the New Hampshire primary bursts into significance in especially 1968, because in 1968, uh, Gene McCarthy, the anti-war senator from Minnesota, does not beat the sitting president, Lyndon Johnson, but he comes so close to Lyndon Johnson, the sitting incumbent president, that Lyndon Johnson decides to not run for re-election. And that's really very, very significant in the history of the New Hampshire primary. Um, Once the party transforms itself, and by 1976, Jimmy Carter, I, I say it in my book, he's the first one who understood the rules, the new rules of the road. And the new rules of the road said that this was now a sequential process and that winning in one state 
was going to have an impact on winning in the next state and the next state and the next state. So Carter goes to Iowa, the first caucus state, where, again, they put a presidential preference on the ballot and wins Iowa and finds himself emerging from obscurity, wins New Hampshire, and then the rest is history. And the candidates in 1976 who decided to skip Iowa and skip New Hampshire found that they couldn't get in the game. Okay, And as I, as I write in the book, in both parties, every couple of cycles, there's some presidential candidate who thinks they can skip the early states. And guess what? <laughs> they end up skipping the whole process. The most recent one was Rudy Giuliani, um, who thought that he could skip Iowa and New Hampshire and make his stand in Florida. By the time he got to Florida, he was really not in the race at all and got out shortly thereafter. So those two states become increasingly important because we are now in a public and a sequential process. And Jimmy Carter, as you mentioned, goes from Jimmy Who to our 39th president and becomes really the, the framework for so many candidates after him oh, absolutely. to try to emulate what Jimmy Carter did. Absolutely. Jimmy Carter really, he he got the new nomination system in a way that more established candidates couldn't see it. You know, people like Scoop Jackson, very, very respected uh, United States senator from Washington state, um, Got just got left out of the of the seventy six race, and Carter was the one who understood that this was a different world. He was also the outsider in a year in which the country was looking for an outsider. Yeah, he was an outsider, um, but also he was also the non Nixon. You know, I mean, Jimmy Carter really fit the time in 1976. Nixon was an imperial president. Jimmy Carter was a homespun guy who carried his own suit bag and stayed in homes in Iowa. And he he fit the time as well. So the Democrats looking for a nominee looked to who was and who is as un-Nixon like as possible. And that turned out to be Jimmy Carter. A couple of years ago, the former president, Jimmy Carter, on a talk radio program and discussed his own campaign, but also where we are today in terms of money and politics. Let's listen. Uh, now it's just an oligarchy with a, with unlimited political bribery being the essence of getting the nominations for, pres, for president or the elected president. And the same thing applies to governors and U.S. senators and, and Congress members. So... Now we've just seen a complete subversion of our political system uh, as a payoff to major contributors who want and expect and sometimes get uh, favors for themselves after the election's over. Elaine K. Mark, your reaction to President Carter? Well, what what happened to turn this into more of an oligarchy was two things. Um, one is the public financing system, which was in effect after Watergate, and Jimmy Carter was was part of that. That system collapsed in 2004. People stopped taking matching funds from the government. They stopped staying within the spending limits in states. And it collapsed and people didn't use it anymore. Uh, The second thing that happened was that a bunch of states who were anxious to uh, get the attention that Iowa and New Hampshire get, they moved themselves early. And so now you go Iowa, 
six days later is New Hampshire, and then seven days later is Super Tuesday. And when Carter ran in 76, there were many weeks between New Hampshire and the other primaries. And in those weeks, Jimmy Carter, an unknown, could consolidate his win, turn himself into a national candidate, and people could look and see, well, do we like this guy or not, right? Now this thing moves like a freight train. And so winning early is all important. And you see the sort of craziness of California moving early. All California does by moving early is make New Hampshire even more important than it is. These states ought to move back. They ought to place themselves throughout the season, and they'll all get a shot at the nomination. But the way it runs now when everything goes so fast, uh, we'll know who the nominee is by St. Patrick's Day 2020. I mean, we'll, we'll know it right away because this thing's going to go in a couple of weeks in a freight train. And that helps uh, more established, well-funded candidates. Let me bring up the issue of superdelegates, and I want to share with you two comments. First, from the then-party chair of the Democratic National Committee, Florida Congresswoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz. She was on Fox News defending the idea of superdelegates. This was early in the 2016 primary process. It's important to clarify the difference between pledged and unpledged delegates, Brett. In a primary and a caucus, the candidates come out of those with pledged delegates who are bound on the first ballot to support the candidate that earned that delegate. Unpledged delegates are our party leaders and elected officials who actually can make up their mind at any point and change their mind. We separate those so that we don't have elected officials and party leaders running against the activists who we want to make sure are helping to diversify our convention. That's something we take great pride in. That from Florida Representative Democrat Debbie Wasserman Schultz in early 2016. She was the chair of the DNC in an interview with uh, Brett Baer on the Fox News Channel. And so, Elaine K. Mark, if 1968 was a turning point when it comes to the primary process, was post-2016 a turning point when it comes to superdelegates? Yes, it was. Yes, it was. And remember, superdelegates were instated in time for the 1984 convention. And the thought was that after the second tumultuous Democratic convention, which was the 1980 fight between President Carter and Senator Ted Kennedy, after that convention, people said, you know, the United States senators, the congressmen, the governors, people who run with the presidential candidate and, more importantly, who govern with the presidential candidate, were basically missing from the convention floor. They, they Sometimes they couldn't even get on the floor um, or they had a guest pass, which was not the same thing as being a delegate. And the thought was that when the party is working through difficult stuff – the leadership of the party ought to be there because they share the label and they govern together. So that's when superdelegates were invented. And they they existed in every convention from 1984 all the way through 2016. They never overturned the will of the voters, even though in theory they could have. But in 2016, Bernie Sanders, who, although he had been in the United States Congress for more than three decades, uh, had very little 
support among the superdelegates, turned this into an issue against Hillary Clinton and was part of his larger allegation that this system was rigged and rigged against an, uh, you know, an insurgent candidate like him. Well, this is what he said in 2016, interviewed by John Dickerson on CBS's Face the Nation. What has upset me and what I think is I wouldn't use the word rigged because we knew what the rules were. But what is really dumb is that you have closed primaries like in New York State where three million people who were Democrats or Republicans could not participate. Where you have a situation where over 400 superdelegates came on board Clinton's campaign before anybody else was in the race eight months before the first vote was cast. That's not rigged. I think it's just a dumb process uh, which has certainly disadvantaged uh, our campaign. Well, um, it is a process that was done in reaction to the 1980 convention and the 1976 conventions, too. It was a process. It was not dumb. It was done for the reason of including people who have a stake in the party and a stake in governing in the process of choosing the president. They're, they're, they're not the majority of the convention. They're actually usually 14 to 15 percent of the convention. And the idea was that you wanted to know who they thought could be president. And it, in the Democratic Party, it's generally worked out that the superdelegates followed the results of the convention. In the Republican Party, you could imagine a scenario where had they had superdelegates, they may not have chosen Donald Trump because who knows better than people who are in government that you can't do things like make Mexico pay for the wall, okay? And who knows better than the fact that someone with Donald Trump's temperament is frankly not suited to be a very good president, uh, he doesn't have – it's not just experience. It's just a way of uh, behaving that I think a lot of Americans think has not been very productive. So the inclusion of superdelegates is really meant to show some guidance for the party. They will still be part of the 2020 convention, only they will not have a vote on the first ballot. They will have a vote on the second ballot if there is no first ballot winner, which I think everybody – it was a compromise. Um, I think there are some Bernie Sanders supporters who wanted to have no, no superdelegates at all. And then there were other people who wanted to have more superdelegates. So it, it was a classic compromise, and I think it's, it's a good one. So you don't think it's an overcorrection from 2016? No, because the superdelegates will still be there to vote on critical issues like the platform, okay, like rules, like credentials. They will still have votes on those items. What they will not be able to do is the fear, is what the Bernie people feared so much, which many of us on the other side said, look, it's not going to happen, but I, I see why they feared it. They will not be able to overturn the will of the voters on a first ballot. But if the voters do not speak clearly, okay, if they are all over the place, if there's several candidates and nobody has a majority, then the superdelegates will come in and have their voices heard. 
two debates down. The next one will be next month in Houston on ABC. And so as we sit here in August, give us the Elaine Kmark assessment of this Democratic primary. What are you seeing? What are you feeling? Well, I think that the inclusion of so many people, some of whom have no business running for president, has been detrimental. Okay, I think there are many good, serious candidates in this crowd. And then I think there are some people in there who cluttered up the stage, who detracted, who took time away from hearing what the voters need to hear. So I would have liked, but of course, in this climate, it's hard to do. I would have liked the party to have a little bit more say in who got on that stage, apart from just who could buy a number of, you know, small contributors. And there's a billionaire in the race right now who's literally buying small contributors, which is kind of a bizarre thing to to do. So I would have liked some of the, the field to be cleared a little bit. On the other hand, I suspect by September the field will be cleared. And we'll be down to maybe eight or ten candidates, and many of whom have a a, a reasonable uh, rationale for running for president. And I think then this, the field will kind of get more clear. What I'm disturbed about is how early this started, because I think you saw in the first debate especially, there were candidates, some of them serious candidates, who are just simply not ready for prime time. They were raising their hands on ridiculous things that will not be good either in a primary or in a general election. And I I think that had they been out there campaigning a little bit longer before they had to be presented to the whole nation, they might have been more savvy candidates. Well, that goes back to what you were talking about earlier with Jimmy Carter, the so-called invisible primary. And and Jimmy Carter has said this, that he had the chance to to make his mistakes in 1975 without the media glare. Absolutely. That's not the case in 2019. Oh, no. I mean, look, there are so many moments from that first debate and some fewer from the second debate that are going to end up in Republican opposition ads. I mean, just so many. And what you saw in the second debate was a lot of learning going on. Okay. Candidates, for instance, understood that telling Americans you're going to take away their private health insurance is probably not a great idea. And because you can't sell them a pig and a poke, you know, you can't say, oh, I'm going to take it away and I promise you I'll do something better. You can have a public option and show them that there's something better, but you can't just promise them because nobody's going to believe you. So I think that there was learning going on between the first and the second. But unfortunately, I think that first debate was kind of a disaster for the Democrats. And I, I hope they can get past it. So as I look at this race, it seems to me it comes down to ideology versus electability. Is that a fair assessment? I, I, I would say it comes down to ideology versus reality. Okay. There are just some things that are extraordinarily difficult to do. And there's a real absence of practicality in some of the more far-left proposals out there. And I, I think that Americans are very practical. They don't believe, they just don't believe big, unrealistic things. 
oh, yes, we're going to give you this unbelievable health insurance, no deductibles, nothing. We're going to cover all sorts of stuff. And by the way, um, you're really not going to pay more taxes um, than you're already paying for health care. Now, that may end up being true. Okay, I can actually see a scenario where that ends up being true. But you have to show people. You can't just tell people and expect them to believe it. What are you looking for as this primary process unfolds in terms of the candidates, in terms of the results, and what potential surprises you think we could see as you kind of forecast to 2020? I'm looking for candidates that have a realistic grasp of public policy. Okay, and and just and I and I think we saw a bunch of them. I think you know I think Kamala Harris has come around to a more realistic stance. Certainly, Joe Biden, because of all his experience, has that. Um, I think Kristen Gillibrand. I think Amy Globachar. I, th- I think a lot of the people in the race, Cory Booker. I think many of them are have a good and sound grasp of public policy. Um, And then I'm looking for people who have the political savvy to compete in a country that is really very closely divided, okay, between uh, Democrats and Republicans, and where the Republicans have a somewhat of an edge, not in numbers, but because of the Electoral College. And so I'm looking for people who can actually compete and have a sense of how to compete in the Michigans, the Wisconsins, and the central Pennsylvanias of this country. So I'm, I'm looking for both, both of those things. But again, let me go back to something you said earlier. Despite a crowded field with well over 20 candidates vying for the nomination, you think potentially this could be wrapped up by spring? I think it will. I think it will be wrapped up by spring. Yeah, because I think, first of all, there's there's a this is a little technical, but there is a misconception out there about the fifteen percent threshold. People see that and they say, "Oh, that means everybody's going to get delegates, right?" Or lots of well, no, the fifteen percent threshold is applied at the congressional district level, where you usually have four or five delegates. Okay, so there are going to be people by St. Patrick's Day in 2020 who have 10 delegates, maybe, out of 2,000 and some allocated. All right. Um, They're going to be hard-pressed to stay in the race. They're going to be hard-pressed to say to contributors that they should stay in the race. Because also, if you're a senator or a governor or want any political viability down the road— You don't want to go down in flames. No, and I sincerely wish, and I have written this on the Brookings site, and other people have written it as well, there are candidates in this race who I really think should be running for Senate in 2020 in their states because, let's face it, it is important to win the presidency. It's also important to win the Senate. If if you care about... Uh, choice for women, for instance, the Senate is where the judges happen. So you've just got to win back the Senate if you're a Democrat and you care about those issues. So I, I sincerely hope that some of these candidates will get out quickly and in time to file for a Senate seat in their states. Elaine K. Mark, she is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution here in Washington, D.C., and the author of the book, Primary Politics, Everything You Need to Know About How America Nominates 
its presidential candidates. Thank you for joining us. Well, thanks for having me, Steve. And a reminder, this podcast is available on the free C-SPAN radio app, wherever you download your favorite podcast, and online at cspan.org. We thank you for listening.